Welcome to Labor Law Radio. This is your host, Michael Tracy, and you can find us on the internet at www.laborlawradio.com. You can submit uh, your questions and comments there, or you can call us toll-free, 888-678-7229. So for those regular listeners, we have been on a bit of a hiatus here over the last couple weeks. We've been running reruns on the radio, and you haven't seen any new podcast up on the website. That's because I've been uh, extremely busy, and my firm has been extremely busy. As most of you know, I am a practicing attorney, and as my caseload increases, then I can't spend as much time talking to you on the radio and uh, responding to uh, questions online. So we've had a couple of uh, big cases, a big class action. Well, not so big class action, but it was a lot involved with it, and uh, that's uh, been resolved. And so now I've got some some more time, and we're back uh, back on the the air and back on the the internet. So this week uh, we're going to sort of have a two. We always have a two-session uh, uh, thing in the first half, but they're going to be very uh, disparate when we sort of talk about related things. First half, we're going to be back to basic wage and hour just because I've received so many questions. It started with the 4th of July, all these questions about holiday pay and you know things like that. And so we're going to talk a little bit about holiday pay, mandatory overtime, and uh, another issue that's uh, fairly common as an uh, employment illegal employment practice, and that is using... Uh, independent contractors when they're really an employee and they're getting around to paying them benefits or paying them overtime or things like that. The second half of the hour, we are going to get into various different types of legal actions that result from employees bringing forth grievances. So, you know, you can take your thing to the labor board. We've talked about uh, the problems with doing that in the past. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about more about that in the, uh, the second half of the hour. But what I really want to get into are the types of things that I do for the employees who are bringing these causes of action. And those are arbitrations, uh, class actions, collective actions, and private attorney general causes of action. So probably doesn't ring a bell for a lot of listeners out there, but it is a very interesting subject, especially because a lot of you are covered by arbitration agreements and you don't even know it. There's a good chance that when you signed up for this employment, even when you before you were even hired maybe, just on the job application, you may have signed something binding yourself to arbitration. And we're going to cover what that means. Uh, does it work in your favor? Does it work against you? Uh, you know, What are the issues and how does that, that affect your ability to bring a class action if you need to? Because in a lot of these cases, uh, you know, if you have a small claim, you're not going to find a lot of attorneys that are interested in pursuing just your individual claim for, you know, some missed meal breaks if the thing's only a couple thousand dollars. But if there's a couple hundred employees there, you have a lot of more leverage there if you can still bring a class action. I will also talk about some other things that sort of new developments in the law in terms of this private attorney general uh, act. So it was passed in 2004. It's a very interesting, uh, interesting thing. Some new developments have come up in that and. You know, it takes things a while to move through the legal process. So even though it was passed in 2004 and now it's 2007, uh, not a lot of cases out there on it. There have been a couple, and we'll talk about why I think that's a, a very useful tool in getting employers to comply with the law. But for our first half here, I want to get back to the regular drum of questions that I get every every time a holiday comes up, whether it's Fourth of July or Labor Day is coming up. I always get these questions. I always answer them, uh, but uh, uh, so I'll, co- I'll answer them again. The question is, if I take a holiday off, let's say the holiday is Monday, and I don't work on Monday, and they make me work on Saturday as a makeup day, 
So you only worked 40 hours during the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, eight hours a day. But you get your check, and they pay you for 48 hours. It says 48 hours worked and eight hours holiday. Do you get overtime? No, you do not get overtime. Overtime is paid after either eight hours a day or 40 hours in a week that are worked. Overtime is only based on hours worked. Doesn't matter how much they pay you for vacation. Doesn't matter how much they pay you for sick time. Doesn't matter if they call it paid time off. Doesn't matter if they call it something else. If you weren't performing work for 40 hours in the week, you don't get overtime. If you weren't performing work for more than eight hours in a day, you don't get overtime. So even if they pay you for a holiday, and even if your paycheck stub says 48 hours during the week, it does not mean you get overtime. You must work those hours. So please make a note of that for the next holiday and uh, then you don't have to uh, have to worry about it. The other question I get is, if you worked that Monday, the 4th of July or Labor Day or whatever holiday is, it's a national holiday and you worked on it, are you entitled to anything extra? No. There is no provisions in California labor law or federal labor law that requires an employer to pay an additional premium for any holiday worked. Doesn't matter if it's a religious holiday, doesn't matter if it's a national holiday, doesn't matter if it was approved by Congress, it doesn't matter if the courts have the day off, it doesn't matter if the banks are closed. They are not required to pay you extra for your work on that day. Now, the reason for that is that the legislators really didn't want to get into defining you know, what holidays you get paid for and, and, and what you don't getting into religious holidays and things like that. And they want to give employers the flexibility to fashion their own incentive programs to get people to, to work on these days. And it's, it would just really create a regulatory nightmare for, you know, what holidays are recognized and which ones aren't. And different industries would be impacted very differently. If you routinely work on holidays, obviously your labor costs are going to go up uh, significantly because you need all your employees to report to work that day while other industries you know traditional industries that you know take holidays off are going to be uh, benefited by this law because their, their employees aren't working so they don't uh, need to pay them any overtime for that time so in any case there are no regulations you don't get time and a half you don't get double time pay if you work a holiday it's just like any other day of the week if it's past 40 hours in a week yes you get overtime if it's if you work past eight in a day yes you get overtime but Holidays are nothing special. Fourth of July is not nothing special. Labor Day is nothing special. Christmas is nothing special. New Year's is nothing special. No holiday requires an employer to pay you a premium for that day. Now, a lot of employers have uh, policies where they, they pay you additional time, you know, time and a half, double time, whatever you want to call it for that uh, if you work on that day. And they do have to honor those uh, agreements, but there's also nothing that requires that those agreements be fair frequent question that I get is, I, if I work on the Monday, I get paid for eight hours of straight time. But if I don't work on Monday, they pay holiday pay, and I still get exactly eight hours of straight time. That's not fair. If I work, I get the same amount as if I don't work. That doesn't seem fair to me. Well, it may not be fair, but again, the law is not about being fair to people. The law is simply about complying with exactly what the law says to do. And the law says you don't have to pay people when they work on a holiday in an extra wage, and they're not required to pay you when you don't work. There's no requirement 
that they pay you holiday pay. You're always allowed to pay more than the law requires. You're never allowed to pay less than it. So if they want to pay you for working on it, I mean, they have to pay you when you work on it, but they don't have to pay you an overtime premium. Nothing special about the holiday. If you work eight hours, they must pay you eight hours. They also have the option to pay you for not working on the holiday, and they can pay you the exact same amount of money to work and not work. Nothing illegal with that at all. That is, you don't see too many employers doing it because you don't see a bunch of people running out to volunteer for the holiday and people call in sick, and it's probably a bad employment practice. But I have seen a number, I probably get four or five people a year who ask just that question. This employer has implemented this policy. I always wonder what they're thinking because uh, the employees definitely aren't happy about it. And as I said before, you know, for this section, you know, we get a lot of employees, but I also get a lot of employers who listen to the show um, calling and asking for advice on little things and stuff like that. Uh, they do want to comply with, uh, with the law. They don't want to get in trouble. So employers, again, my advice to you is you never want a disgruntled employee. So even if you can say, well, you know, I listen to Michael Tracy every week, and he told me I can pay you for eight hours if you work it, and I don't have to pay you anything extra, and I can pay everybody else in the company for not working that uh, day the same exact same amount of you, as you, and I can require you to work that. I listened to Michael Tracy, and that's what he told me. So you can do that to your employees if you want, nothing illegal with it, but chances are they're not going to be too happy with it. And unhappy employees tend to surf the internet looking for labor law attorneys' websites that describe a whole slew of other labor violations that you may have committed. Uh, you might try www.godovertime.com, which is my website, and you'll find a whole bunch of various labor law violations that are fairly common for employers. If your employee goes through that list and finds that you're violating one of those, well, they can't sue you for the holiday pay issue because what you did there was perfectly legal, but they may sue you for meal breaks. They may sue you for pay stub violations. They may sue you for rest breaks, uh, any any number of, of labor law violations that uh, that are out there and employees uh, go after when they are motivated to by a uh, by an employer. So in any case, hopefully we have covered uh, holiday pay uh, in excruciating detail. The next issue I want to talk about that I get so many questions about, no matter how much I talk about it, apparently people uh, are fascinated with this subject well, is mandatory overtime. Can my employer force me to work overtime? In most cases, yes. The vast majority of cases, the, the employer can force you to work overtime. You know, there are some exceptions, you know, I mean, for instance, if you're, if you're in a regulated industry, uh, truck drivers, for instance, have maximum hours of service set by the Department of Transportation if your truck is so big. Um, airline pilots, for instance, have a maximum number of hours that they can work uh, regardless of their overtime pay. I think it's, you know, 60 hours in a week or something like that. But we don't get a lot of cases uh, dealing with, I've never done a case where they're forcing airline pilots to uh, to work more than the uh, the statutory maximum that would be a disaster waiting for the uh, waiting for any airline that did that but uh, for everybody else the general rule is that the employer can require that you work as much overtime as they desire now there is one limit on that that affects a good number of employees out there and that is the 72 hour a week cap unfortunately this doesn't apply to everybody. Um, it applies to certain things called in different wage orders. Now, 
I need to describe that a little bit because what it is is that California has 17 different wage orders. And a wage order is simply a list of regulations that cover a particular industry that's out there. So there's, if you're in the manufacturing industry, it, that's one wage order. If you're in the motion picture industry, that's another wage order. If you're in the uh, on-site mining, that's a separate one. If you're in an agricultural, uh, on the farm, that is a, a separate wage order. If you're off, you know, agricultural or preparing goods for markets, that's another wage order. So there's 17 wage orders out there. And the big question always is, is which one do I fall under? Which wage order applies to me? That should be very easy for you to answer because your employer is required to post a copy at your place of business. Usually they post it in the registry. It has to be someplace that's usually accessible by the employees or usually accessed by the employees. So they generally place it in the lunchroom or the break room or something like that. But they do have to post a copy at the place of business. Now, if you're in a smaller employer, sometimes they don't have these things posted, but you can usually figure it out. You can go to my website, follow the links to the uh, uh, the IWC's website, and that gives you the entire list of wage orders, and you can probably figure out which uh, which one you work in without uh, too much difficulty. Uh, you know, amusement and recreation industry, broadcast industry, motion picture industry, agriculture operations. Some of them are a little bit... Uh, uh, you know, a little bit confusing, you know, public housekeeping industry sounds like it's more like, you know, maids and stuff like that, but that actually covers hospitals and, uh, and all sorts of things. So a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff falls under uh, wage order number five, which is uh, the public housekeeping. So anyway, if you can't find, just look through there, uh, you'll find it pretty, uh, you know, pretty quickly. So in any case, 17 different categories of employees that California has decided to break its labor force down into, and only, I think four of them have the 72-hour restriction. So wage order number four, which covers professional, technical, clerical, mechanical, and similar operations, that's a, a large number of employees in California fall under wage order number four. So a lot of the things we talk about on the show, computer programmers, IT uh, workers, uh, you know, drafters, engineers, things like that, they all fall under wage order number four. Now, a professional engineer is going to be an exempt employee, and so they can, you know, work as much overtime as they as they can require. But for non-exempt employees falling under wage order number four, you are allowed to refuse to work more than 72 hours in a week. But 72 hours a week is quite a bit, and we don't see a lot of people hitting that threshold. So let me finish these wage orders that do have the 72-hour limit, and then we'll talk about... Um, exactly what the employer can require. So wage order number four, professional and uh, technical backgrounds. Wage order number eight, uh, handling products after harvest. Wage order number 13, agricultural products for market on the farm. And wage order 16, on-site construction, drilling, logging, and mining. That's it. If you work in one of those four industries, you've got a 72-hour cap on the total overtime that you can work in a week. Everybody else, the employer can require you to work as much overtime as they want. Now, they have to properly pay you for it. I mean, that's essentially what the legislator uses to regulate this. I mean, if they want to make you work an 18-hour day, well, it's overtime after 8. It's double time after 12. If they want you to work those extra 6 double time hours, well, it's certainly costing them a lot of money. You're also entitled to your meal breaks, one meal break every 5 hours. So you are compensated for... Uh, uh, for your time, and 
you know, if they want to push you to shifts like that, then it's going to cost them a lot of money. So that's essentially what the legislator uses to regulate uh, overtime. They simply make it cost a lot. And But if the employer wants to pay it, they can require that you work it. They also can fire you if you don't work it, and they can give you no notice. So they can say, well, normally we work a 40-hour week, but I need you to work this Saturday. If you say, no, I can't, they have a right to fire you. That's at-will employment in California. We've talked a lot about that in the past. If you have an employment contract, a union contract, something like that, that would override that. But the vast majority of workers in California are at-will, and that means you have to work this weekend, and we can fire you if you don't. Um, They can fire you for any reason at all, so firing you for not uh, showing up uh, to work on the weekend is just as good a reason as anything else. Nothing illegal with that. Now, for those people inside the, you know, those uh, wage orders we talked about, if you are exempt from overtime, you know, we talked about exemptions a number of times, and there's a variety of reasons that you can be exempt, then they can require that you work as much overtime as they want, not pay you anything extra for it. So a lot of people out there uh, who are required to work overtime and uh, are exempt from it, they aren't, even if you work under wage order number four, then you are you don't have a 72-hour cap. They can make you work 168 hours a week if they if they so to desire. So mandatory overtime, I get a lot of questions about it. And in general, yes, the employer can have you work it. And chances are you're not quite at that 72-hour a week threshold. If you are, then maybe you have a, you know, have a right to refuse to work it. But there's no additional premium that kicks in at 72 hours. Simply, if, the, if you do work more than 72 hours, they can't fire you for refusing to work it. That's the only, uh, the only requirement. So the other question I get about uh, mandatory overtime is this reporting back to work issue. There's some urban legend out there that if you work a shift, you're entitled to eight hours of sleep or 12 hours off. I, people phrase the question to me in different ways each time I heard that we were entitled to 24 hours break or something like that. Um, no, there is no requirement like that except in wage order number 12 for the motion picture industry. Inside the motion picture industry, you are entitled to uh, 10 hours off in between your uh, uh, in in between your shifts, so everybody else they can turn you around immediately, unless you work in the motion picture industry, and not a lot of people you know for uh, you know and then the motion picture industry is largely predominated by or is largely dominated by unions, and the vast majority of people working in the motion picture industry are covered by a collective bargaining agreement that all have rest violation provisions and turnaround time provisions you know that are much uh, you know that provide a, a very hefty premium to the employee if they violate the uh, the rest period. So there is that for non-union workers in the motion picture industry, but the vast majority of workers in the motion picture industry are covered by a collective bargaining agreement, which uh, provides for fairly stiff uh, financial compensation to the employee if that's violated. But if you're not in a union and you're not in the motion picture industry, then they can turn you around uh, immediately and have you come back to uh, come back to work. Last question on mandatory overtime is... It relates to mandatory overtime, and that is the resetting the clock at midnight. I get this a lot. They force you to work that 18-hour shift, but you listen to my show, and you know that they can force you to work that 18-hour shift as long as they pay you for it properly. But you started at noon, and just when you worked up to midnight and would be kicking into double time, 
they flip you back to regular time and say, well, the clock starts over at midnight. Is that legal? The answer is probably yes. In general, the employer can set any work day that they want, any 24-hour period, as long as they keep the same thing. And generally, it runs midnight to midnight. That means that at midnight, your overtime resets and it goes back to straight time. So if Monday you show up, uh, you know, first day on the uh, in the work week at noon, you work an 18-hour shift, 12 hours is going to be at midnight. That's going to reset and go back to straight time. Zero uh, from midnight to 6 a.m. is going to be straight time, even though it's part of your eight-hour shift. Now, if you work Tuesday the same shift, midnight to the following 6 a.m., well, then that 6 a.m. on Tuesday is going to combine with the other 12 hours on Tuesday and give you an 18-hour day on Tuesday. It can get a little bit complicated. I have some stuff up on my website about how these uh, shifts work. But if you know your employer is resetting the clock at midnight, as long as they're crediting the next day to the next day's hours, you know, so they have to add up all the 24 hours in the next period as well, then, then that is legal. I do get that question a lot. Okay, we're running a little bit of short of time in this first segment, and I wanted to get to this independent contractor uh, segment because this is a very common labor violation out there. Also, there's some competitive blogs, not blogs, a podcast that are out there on the Internet from these employers, um, you know, these defense attorneys, you know. They, and, and there's this, you know, it, it's... Uh, we get along. Plaintiff's attorney and defense attorneys usually get along pretty well. Um, you know, I make fun of them here on the uh, the podcast. And I'm sure they make fun of me and, you know, when they're having their defense attorneys uh, power lunches and playing golf and, and all that stuff that uh, defense attorneys do, they're probably making fun of me. But, uh, you know, we get along pretty well. Ultimately, we both have the exact same goals in mind. We both want the employer to comply with the law. They may have a different view of what that law is and may have a different way they want to have the employer comply with it by sort of advising them and making these employee handbooks and everything like that. I prefer to drag them into court and make the employer pay my client a large sum of money. That generally ensures that the employer is going to comply with the law. That's the way I choose to do it. Defense attorneys have a different, uh, have a different spin on it. But uh, in any case, one of these defense attorneys has a uh, has a podcast out there. I'm not going to promote it on, on this show, so don't don't listen to it. But um, maybe maybe I'll bring on the show. We'll have a little debate sometime. But she did this uh, segment on independent contractors, so I thought I would uh, sort of rebut that one. It was I mean, nothing was wrong with it. It was from an employer's perspective. But there was also a recent case that came down, uh, just published, very long running uh, appeal against uh, FedEx, where FedEx was classifying its drivers as independent contractors, and the Court of Appeals recently said, no, they are employees. And very interesting because we'll, we'll go through the requirements for an independent contractor, but we'll also see that, you know, in that case, the employees purchased their own trucks, and they sort of were running their own little mini businesses, which, you know, a lot of the factors that relate to in being an independent contractor were in that case, but the court found that there were far more in favor of them being employee, and in the words of the uh, the court, if it looks like a duck and acts like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. And the, the, the court actually used that uh, duck analogy in their, uh, in their opinion. So as you can see, it's very... Uh, 
advanced legal reasoning that you need to understand that if it looks like a duck and acts like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. And that's basically, that sums up independent contractor law. It's sort of one of these things that you can, you can smell it a mile away, but unfortunately, attorneys can't brief their case that way. I can't go come into court and say, Your Honor, we all know this guy's an employee. I rest my case. Well, uh, I wouldn't get too far with that. So unfortunately, what attorneys have to do is break it down into a bunch of, you know, characterizations and attributes of an employee versus attributes of an independent contractor. So let me go over those briefly and review each one. We're probably going to have to take a break here, and I'll pick it up on the other side. So we'll see how far we can get. Okay, the first one is whether the whether the worker is engaged in a distinct occupation or business. And that is, you know, in the FedEx case, it's pretty easy. FedEx delivers packages. If you're delivering packages for FedEx, that indicates that you are probably some type of employee of that company. Now, if you are preparing tax returns for FedEx, well, FedEx isn't in the business of preparing tax returns. That's an independent business. If you mow the lawn of FedEx's front, you know, main corporate building, again, they're not in the business of mowing lawns. That would be viewed as a separate and distinct business uh, from FedEx. But if you work in, let's say, the human resources department, even though FedEx isn't in the business of, of human resources, that's a general function of, of, of businesses, and that's not going to be a distinct profession or distinct uh, business from distinct occupation or business from what FedEx does. So. I mean, if it's something that relates to their main core of delivering packages and, uh, you know, maintaining that business of delivering packages, so you may, you know, purchase trucks or, you know, rent airlines or, you know, manage their uh, computer network or something like that, all that relates directly to what FedEx does, and that would be uh, indicative of an employee. Next consideration is whether considering the kind of occupation and locality, the work is usually done under the principal's direction or by a specialist without supervision. This isn't really too relevant in the FedEx case, and it's largely goes in lo- along with everything else that's in here. So that that's it's a little bit difficult to describe, but you know, essentially, it really applies in the case of specialists like tax accountants, attorneys, um, you know, doctors, uh, people who have a, a high degree of skill and generally operate uh, operate independently of the person who you know, they, they work for. So, for instance, my clients can give me general instructions about how to handle their case, but ultimately, I make decisions about how the case is going to be handled, what the best uh, strategies are to use, and certainly, even though I call them my clients, I'm not an employee of any of my clients because the general, you know, in this, in this type of occupation, the work is usually done, you know, by a specialist without supervision. So, that's what, uh, what that particular uh, thing is you know, the particular characteristic is talking about. In any case, I am about out of time for this segment. I'm going to pick up independent contractors on the other side of the break. Then we're going to get back into arbitrations, class actions, collective actions, and private attorney general actions and how they relate to, you know, your job. And if you something doesn't work out with your job, what your options are going to be if you decide to retain an attorney such as myself and go forward with it. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. 